Well, you heard the scripture today from Matthew chapter six. This is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible as it relates to the subject of fear and anxiety. So if you haven't gotten your Bible out yet, grab it because I'm gonna walk you through this passage and it's a really, really important one. It's loaded with so many important truths. Let me start here. Some of you have been around College Park for a while have heard me say this, that grief is not tame. And by that I mean that when you're experiencing a loss, it can feel like the waves of the sea are just crashing upon you. In fact, you may remember that hymn, that when sorrows when sea billow, like sea billows roll, that's an apt description. Grief just kind of comes in and then it goes out. And sometimes it feels like a tsunami, and other times it feels just like a low tide with extra waves has kind of become a part of your life. So grief is not tame, that's true. I wanna suggest to you something else is true. And as we've been walking through this series, it's helped me to see this at a new level. Grief isn't tame and neither is fear. Fear, similar to grief, but not exactly the same, comes at us in unexpected ways. Fear comes at us from historical reference points. We're afraid about different things. But here's the thing that's different about grief and fear. It seems to me, and maybe you'd agree with this, that we give grieving people a lot more grace than we give fearful people. We, we tend to see grief through a particular lens of maybe it's more understandable. In some cases, grief has a greater connection to causality. Something happened, and so it makes sense that someone is sad. But sometimes fear doesn't have that direct connection. Sometimes we know why someone is afraid. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes I don't even know why I'm afraid. You may not know why you're afraid. You just feel fear. And at other times, there's different opinions as to whether or not you should be afraid. So, for example, it would be almost maybe sinful or just deeply inappropriate to tell, to a, grieving, tell a grieving person, hey, stop being sad. But I've heard a lot of people sometimes who've said to friends, why don't you just stop being fearful? As if it's that easy. Some of you who are hearing me say this, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're a person who struggles deeply with fear and you've been hurt by people. Maybe people you love, maybe even people in our own church. There's been times that in the midst of your struggle with anxiety and fear, frankly, you felt uncared for. You felt like you've been treated disrespectfully and even with disdain. And the result is that sometimes shame can then set in and as a result, you feel very cautious about being honest about your fear or maybe even a bit defensive. You see, the challenge with the issue of fear and anxiety is it's just so much more complicated than grief. Don't get me wrong, grief is complicated. But fear is complicated perhaps in a different, even more broadly misunderstood way. Let me give you an example, two of them. After our stillborn daughter was born in 2004, my wife and I struggled with very different kinds of fear. The innocence of our little life had been shattered, and throughout Sylvia's pregnancy in my wife's womb, Sarah regularly struggled with, I feel like something's wrong. And I often said to her, honey, I'm sure everything's okay. And then here's the problem. It actually wasn't okay. 
and the very thing she was afraid of actually happened. So what do you say then? And I was fearful of not being able to say anything about my wife's fears in the future. And that was a real fear. How do I live with this? How do I deal with this? What do I say? And it was frightening to me as a husband and as a father. Hard to even explain how challenging that was. My my wife and I had the same experience, the loss of a child, but our battles with fear looked incredibly different. Sarah was fearful that she wasn't fearful enough, and I was worried that she or I were being too fearful. Same event, two very different kinds of fear. So you see the complication. Well, let me give you another one. This one is just so etched in my mind. A few weeks after the funeral, there was this huge snowfall in Michigan. We lived out in the country and had a little bit of acreage. And in Michigan, when you live out in the country and there's a huge snowfall, the snowplows use these enormous funnels that throw snow way into the air. I mean, it's a pretty amazing sight. Those snowplows, they they fly down the road at about 60 miles an hour, and they'll throw snow five, six feet over small trees. It's an amazing sight to see. A few weeks after the funeral, after the snowfall, our boys were out playing in the snow and they were by the road because you know a ditch is the best place to build a fort. And when we heard the sound of that snowplow coming down the road, it immediately created fear in our hearts. But I had different fear than my wife had. And the reason is this. From the very moment that we walked away from the funeral, Sarah was petrified that something was gonna happen to our other children, and rightly so. Something had happened to one of our kids. And in this moment, when we hear the snowplow coming down the road, it triggered all of those feelings to come to her, which were also in my heart, but there was another issue in the background, that when Sarah was a child, her dog named Cody was killed by a snowplow just like that in the middle of the winter. And so she has all of these latent feelings as a child of losing a dog, and now the snowplow is coming down the road, And our boys are out in the front yard playing by that ditch, building a snow fort. And so we ran out without coats in the middle of the yard yelling, boys, boys, come back, come back, come back. And they couldn't hear us because the snow plow was so loud. And by then the snow was flying over top of the trees and the snow plow went back and we just were beside ourselves because we thought, what if, what if? And then our kids come running out of the snow covered in the little snowmobile suits going, that was awesome. And the contrast between their feelings and ours couldn't have been more different. Why do I tell you that story? Why am I taking so long to set up this sermon? Here's why. Because our text today is gonna talk about belief. And we have to be really careful how we apply this text because fear is not tame. It's complicated. There's historical issues, there's experiences, there's, there's things related to all sorts of layers in our lives. And so we have to tread a little carefully here. And so I want to encourage you that if you're more prone to fear, I hope you hear my tentativeness and how I'm going to apply the word to your life today. And also, if you're a person who doesn't understand fear very well, I want to caution you. I want to caution you about this text because you could use this text and unintentionally do a lot of damage to someone. Because this text is essentially about evaluating the belief that's underneath our fears. Or maybe you could think of it this way, what is the unbelief that's underneath our fears? And if we're not careful, you could take this verse and just tell every 
fearful person, just believe, just believe. At the same time, fearful people need to believe. So how do we thread this needle? This series has been really helpful for me as I'm just walking through some really complicated texts and trying to think, how do I apply the Bible? I want to remind you that we're looking at five key questions. So if you're joining us for the first time, we've already covered two, who's in control, what is fear? Third, what must I believe? That's where we are today. Next week, what do I pray or how do I pray? And finally, what do I think? So here's what my intention is today and how we're going to go about this. What I'm going to give you is from Matthew chapter six, I'm going to give you nine questions to ask. There's a risk in doing so. Nine questions, that's a lot of questions. And I want you to know that the sermon notes, this whole manuscript's available even this morning, and so if you miss a point, don't worry, you can just grab it off of the internet, off our website, and what I want you to do is I want you to use these nine questions this way. I want you to use them as diagnostic questions to ask yourself about your fear and about the issue of belief. Because here's what I think, and you, you see if this is right in your life. I think that one of the strategies that is helpful in trying to thread the needle of this issue with fear is asking it particular questions. And I'm gonna give you nine of them because not all nine are gonna apply to every person who struggles with fear. So here's your assignment. As you listen, as you take notes, as you consider what I'm saying through the scriptures, I want you to identify which of these nine questions are helpful right now. Another question may be helpful down the road, but which of these nine questions are actually helpful to me in light of the fears that I'm feeling? Don't apply it to somebody else. Don't think of someone else's fear. You think about your fear and think about how do these questions help me to diagnose what's underneath my fear, realizing that fear isn't tame. All right, here we go, nine questions. Number one, am I allowing this to control me too much? We're gonna cover this quickly because we've already addressed it in part in a previous sermon on who's in control. But look at verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So the word therefore leads out our text, and it's important because it indicates that something was said previously that now Jesus is more fully unpacking or he's giving an implication of what he talked about previously. And if you look at verse 24, you'll see what he was talking about. He was talking about the fact that you cannot serve God and money. So why would he talk about money? Well, the reason is, is that money gives us control. If you have money, you have options. And with options come the ability to limit your exposure or your need to think about what you're going to do. So if you have money, it gives you ways to solve problems. And what Jesus is saying, though, is it's possible for the use of money to become such that it actually takes more control of your life than what it should. Interesting, the word anxious, do not be anxious about your life, means to be concerned with or to meditate on or to care about. And what you need to know is this word in and of itself isn't bad. There's things that you should care about. 
As I said last week, there's things that if you don't worry about them, I'm a little worried about you. A parent should worry about their kids playing in the street and safety issues. A plant manager should worry about the safety of his or her employees. So it's not a bad word in and of itself. Anxiety becomes sinful, listen carefully, when it is applied inappropriately or when it expresses itself in a way that's out of control. And that's why this question is so important. Am I allowing this thing to have too much control? Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. But here's the problem, wait a minute. Food and water and shelter, clothing, are pretty important. These are the things that we have to think about. In fact, I'm glad my wife thinks about what we're going to eat. I'm glad that we think about having enough food on the shelf. Jesus clarifies in this text, and he says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's the key. The key to when this becomes a problem is when I start believing, listen, that the sum total of my life, my entire existence, my emotional happiness is completely conditioned on matters related to food, drink, and clothing. What he's saying here is that as important as they are, I could allow them to control me in a way that just isn't helpful. So you have to ask yourself this question, and I find this to be a really helpful question. Am I giving this thing, as important as it is, too much control? Because underneath that question is a belief question, and it's this. Do I believe that this thing, whatever it is that I want, deserves this much time, energy, effort, and thought? And you need to ask yourself, am I giving it too much control? That's question one. Question two. Verse 26 asks us this question, am I forgetting God's love for me? Jesus then says, look at the birds of the air. He, it's like he takes us outside, shows us around. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then here's the clincher. He says, are you not of more value than they? So Jesus wants us to look around us and to see the beauty of the way in which God has loved the world, specifically even the created world. And one of the reasons that I think Jesus does this is that fear tends to make us rather myopic. We only focus on what is missing. We don't see all of the other ways in which God has either taken care of us or demonstrated his love for us. We begin to focus on the very thing that we're nervous about, and we forget the history of how God has continually showed his love to us. This is one of the reasons, if you're a Christian, why the gospel is so central. Because you can take your fears to the very foot of the cross and remind your soul, if God loved me in Christ with Jesus dying for me, if this was my greatest need, then surely God can love me with my job, with my kids, with this illness, with the tension that I feel in my society and culture. Jesus says, aren't you more valuable than birds? Now, come on. Jesus is using an illustration. I'm not suggesting that you walk around and sort of prop yourself up by telling yourself, I'm more valuable than a bird. I'm more valuable than birds. I'm more valuable than birds. Jesus is not specifically trying to identify the value of birds and your value. What he's attempting to do is link the fact that God cares for them and God cares for you because you are his children. 
You see, the pressure of circumstances can sometimes cause us to wonder, how does this fit with God's love for me? Maybe even something in your past causes you to be tempted to believe that if this is true, then God can't love me. Maybe a difficult childhood, or even the idea of God as your father is really hard and complicated because of some bad things that were your experience growing up. Or maybe you're the kind of person where you have a hard time just trusting people in general. You know, when you think of kind of the population, there's people who kind of tend towards trust and people who tend towards suspicion. Sometimes suspicious people are that way for good reason. Sometimes that's just sort of how they're wired. And maybe you're the kind of person that you know intellectually that God loves you, but you need evidence, you need proof. See, one of the reasons that I love the Psalms, in particular the Lament Psalms, is they do two things at the same time. They acknowledge this is really hard and yet God is good. And what Jesus is attempting for us to see here is that God's purposes for us are loving and kind even if we can't always reconcile those. So another question to ask yourself is, am I forgetting God's love for me? For some of us, the reason that we're afraid is because we've come to believe, if I can't see this as loving, then it isn't loving. And as a result, you worry about it, you're fearful, when the situation comes, and what you need to do is ask yourself, what's the belief underneath that? What, what am I believing in this moment about God, about myself? Am I forgetting God's love for me? Question number three, verse 27. Am I trying to fix something beyond my ability? Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? The next question is when we're fearful or anxious about things that are just simply beyond our ability to control. Sometimes we worry because we're seriously trying to control something that's just impossible for us to control. Sometimes worry stems from our desire to fix things. And fixing things isn't bad, but the fact of the matter is there are situations in life that are so broken and so complex and so challenging that quite frankly, if you work so hard to try and fix it, it'll break you. There are things in life that can't be fixed easily, or you can't fix them. And the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is calling us to understand that there are things about our lives that are outside of our ability to really fix. Which is why verse 27 says, can you add a single hour to the span of your life? The answer is no. Or other translations say, add a cubit to your height, like 18 inches. You see, there are some things that are divinely designed to be out of our control. It's a regular reminder that we need God's help. There are situations that are impossible for us to manage. Let me just be a little transparent. It won't be a surprise to many of you who are in close proximity to my life, but this is where like my personality and ministry can really be dangerous. Because I like to fix things. I like to solve problems. I like to help. Like I really like to help. I got into ministry because I wanted to see people change. But here's the problem. When you're dealing with broken, sinful people with a lifetime of complex problems, when you can't fix them, the other thing that you can do is you worry and you think and you become anxious. And you know why? Here's why I do it. Because worry feels like I'm doing something. 
I can't fix it. I can't solve it. It's so huge. So I need to think about it and think about it and think about it. It's what fixers do when fixers can't fix. You think about a fix and it never comes. And the right conclusion for the fixer who finds him or herself in worrying is to come to this conclusion. I can't do this. And you know what I found? I need to come to that conclusion a lot earlier in my thought process. In fact, I'm trying to take that thought, I can't do this, and I'm trying to put it at the front end of the things that I'm thinking about, not on the back end. Because usually in my life, I run to a text like this in Matthew chapter six, after I've tried everything, after worry has gotten its best of me, and then I say, I can't do this, maybe I need to deal with worry. Well, underneath that is a belief system. A belief system that I think I can fix this. And so one of the belief systems that the Lord's helping me to see is for me just to start with the belief, I can't fix this. That doesn't mean I'm throwing up my hands, but it means I'm gonna think differently about my worry, anxiety, and fear. Fourth question. Am I starting to doubt God's character? Look at verse 28. He says, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. So now Jesus directs our attention to the lilies, to the fields, to see their beauty. He says, I tell you, Solomon in all of his glory, that's an important word, Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So the question now is, diagnostically, is your worry at its root because you don't trust in God's character? You see, Jesus points us to the lilies because he wants us to see their beauty. He, he says that they're arrayed in such splendor that Solomon didn't even have. They, they grow because of the provision of a good and gracious God. The lilies are beautiful because God made them beautiful. They're lovely because God provides for them, not because of their effort. God is the one who's behind every good, beautiful morning when flowers bloom and the sun comes up and the birds chirp. There's a God that's behind that. Jesus drives home the point. He says, these lilies of the field, if they're less valuable because they're here today, gone tomorrow, thrown into an oven, he then says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He adds this little thing about faith because at the end of the day, what's happening here is a lack of belief that God is going to help me or that God is unkind or that God doesn't care is actually a faith issue. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just about clothing. I'm sure your closet, like mine, is full. I've never had to think about what I'm gonna wear, like if I had any clothes, that's what I mean. Instead, the issue here isn't clothing, it's glory. You may not worry about clothing, but you may worry what people think about your clothing because of what it says about you. You may worry about your job or your grades or the school you wanted to get into. You may worry about your friend group or what they think of you or what certain people think about you on social media or a, a, a spot on an athletic team that you wanted. See, see, clothing here is representative of the glory issue and really glory is anything that gives you what you want. 
Some of you are anxious because you don't like the way God made you. You're anxious and fearful because you wonder, why did God put me into this family? Why did he give me this child? Why did he make me this particular way? And what I want you just to ask yourself is all the anxiety and all the worry that's related to those questions, what's the belief underneath it that maybe, maybe, maybe you just need to think about? Sometimes fear and anxiety can actually lead us to become sinfully angry with God where we start to accuse him of forgetting about us or abandoning us. Sometimes fear and anxiety is because we're doubting that God really is good. Question number five, am I acting like a non-believer? Now this gets a little more personal, a little more pointed, and again, if this question works, great. If this is not the question you need, then just listen for a later time. But this is important in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, so anxious people often use their words to express their anxiety. And unfortunately, if you're an anxious person, you can make other people anxious by your anxiety. Anxious parents create anxious kids sometimes. Anxious leaders create anxious followers. I could show you passages in the Old Testament that say, if you're a soldier and you're fearful, please go home. Because you, it, that spreads like wildfire. He then says, for, verse 32, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We'll pick up that second half of that verse in a moment. But right now what I want you to see is the Gentiles seek after these things. So what's Jesus saying here? The word Gentiles here refers to people who are not believers. So Jesus talked about it because his primary audience in this moment were, were Jews. He's saying here, that people who don't know what God is like, people who don't know God's character, they don't know what it means to trust him, they haven't tasted of God's goodness, what option do they have but to worry? Like they gotta worry, because they think the whole created system isn't governed by a good and gracious God who cares for people. They think it's all about some capricious design of divine animosity towards people, or God just kinda set the clock in motion and stepped back and said, well, good luck with it. So worry and fear and anxiety can actually cause us to act like people who don't believe. And church, I just have to exhort you that if you tune into what's happening in the context of media and what other people are saying, we need to be very certain that we hear one thing out of one ear and we hear biblical truth out of the other because our lives can gravitate towards the predominant mindset prevalent within a culture that doesn't know about a good and kind God. You may be listening today and you're not yet a believer. And this may be, just be a really good place for you to ask some questions about the beliefs that are underneath your worry. You could be watching today and to be honest, you're just so tired because you're trying to find all sorts of ways to manage your life and you keep running into the fact that you just can't quite grab a hold of the control in your life that you feel like you need. And friend, I'm just telling you, like I totally get that. In fact, that's one of the ways that people come to faith in Christ. They come face to face with the reality that they can't control their jobs or the economy or their health. For that matter, they can't control their eternal destiny. 
Like, I got a problem so big within me, I need Jesus to help me with it because I can't do it. He has to do it for me as I receive him as my Lord and Savior. And so what's crazy is maybe your anxiety actually will lead you to become a follower of Christ. And I hope that that happens. In fact, why not make that commitment today? Why not very, right now just to be able to say, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm turning from my sins and I'm gonna trust in Christ and make that the first step, not just towards battling worry, well, that'll come. But the first step towards actually having a right relationship with your Savior and your God. You can begin to act like an unbeliever, Christian. Ask yourself, am I acting like an unbeliever? Number six, stay with me. Do I really believe that God knows what I need? Verse 31, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Then verse 32, these are the things Gentiles seek after. Here it comes. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. So this next question is, do I believe that God knows what I need? This is not an easy truth to believe, especially when life is hard. And yet, this is one of those truths in the Bible that I have found to be exceptionally helpful for me personally. Here's why. Because when hard things come, it's been helpful for my own soul when I'm tempted to worry about them or to be filled with fear to have this thought run through my mind. Lord, apparently you believe that this is what I need right now. I don't like this. I wish it wasn't here, but I'm trusting that you know what I need. Sometimes I've prayed that over a schedule that's just way too full. Sometimes over a problem that is just incredibly complex. Sometimes over a difficult person that I just don't know what to do with anymore or a series of events that just feel so unbelievably overwhelming. And I literally say to the Lord, Lord, apparently you think I need this. And so I'm gonna trust you. And underneath that statement, church, is an enormous belief system that's really important as we walk the path of faith in fighting fear and anxiety. Number seven, we're getting close. Verse 33, classic text. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Number seven, are my priorities in the right order? So the idea here is not just that I have the kingdom of God first, like first in order, but it also means first in the order of importance. See, what happens is that worry and fear, they tend to reveal what we love. We worry about the things that we like. We worry about the things that are important to us. And one of the questions that you can ask yourself is, what does this worry reveal about where my affections are? Sometimes we're fearful or worried because we're pursuing the right things, but we're pursuing them in the wrong way or the wrong order. We're not living by belief and trust. Instead, we're consumed by this passionate focus to fix the problem, to stop the pain, to manage the circumstances. And as a result, sometimes we don't even ask the question, how is God using this to shape me? How is he using this to form me? Sometimes we're so tired of the problem that we're dealing with that we don't even care about that question anymore. And can I just encourage you to put that question back on the table in your life? To be able to say, Lord, Help me today to seek first the kingdom. Help me to live with the right priorities, seeking you first. If 
if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that your ultimate aim is that everything in life works in order to form you into the likeness of Jesus. There's not one thing that you're afraid of that can't be used in order to shape you into the likeness of Christ. The question is whether or not I'm going to be okay with that plan. That's the issue. So ask yourself, are my priorities in the right order? Number eight, this is getting really practical. Can I trust the Lord to provide? Verse 33, and all these things will be added to you. Now, this verse doesn't mean I'm going to name it and claim it, so everything that I want, I'm going to receive. No, it means that God has an ability to provide for you, and he's promised he's going to take care of you. This is what Paul says, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He says that in the midst of an appeal to a church to be generous. And this is why giving is so important. Not because of to be able to meet the needs of other people, but in order to regularly remind your soul, I'm gonna give something away because my trust isn't in my bank account, my trust is in the living God. And that's good for your soul to be reminded about that. Because sometimes fear and anxiety can cause us to be less than generous. Sometimes fear or worry can cause us to be a workaholic. Sometimes fear and worry can make you nasty, cutthroat, mean. And we have to ask ourselves, do I trust God's ability to provide? This week I was having a conversation with one of my adult sons. I have permission to, to, to tell you this. And, and, you know, they've had a difficult summer. Plans have canceled. Employment has changed. And so right now they're working for shipped, delivering groceries. And so I've learned all things about shift over the last uh, number of weeks. And uh, we, were, we were sitting six feet apart outside around a fire pit. And uh, one of them was just saying, you know, every night I go to bed and I'm, I don't have employment the next day. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I go to bed and I look at my shift option orders and there's nothing. And sometimes I go to bed and I'm just full of anxiety. And I have to tell myself, I'm just going to go to bed because the Lord knows what I need. And then the next morning, I look, and the ship orders, there's like so many of them, it's unbelievable. And between when I went to bed and when I woke up, suddenly now there's all kinds of opportunity. And I smiled and I said, man, that's just what the Bible says. You can trust God. He's got you. You can go to bed knowing that God is going to work, and can you trust God's ability to provide? Last question, and again, just want you to take these questions and ask yourself, which of these are helpful? Not all of them are gonna be helpful. You ask yourself, which one's gonna be helpful? Here's one of my favorite. Number nine, am I living emotionally ahead of God's provision? If I believe that God's gonna provide, I have to be sure that I'm not trying to live ahead and think about things that I've not yet been provided grace for. Listen to verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This, at first glance, would seem to not be a very encouraging verse. Because it's almost as though it says, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow's really bad. <laughs> it's almost as if I came home and my wife was really burdened. What are you worried about? I'm worried about just, you know, what tomorrow's gonna be. And I say, don't worry about it, I'm sure it's gonna be awful. Like, well, how is that helpful? What is Jesus saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that every day has trouble. We all know that's true. You wake up every day, there's gonna be challenges. But what he's saying is that sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, there's a box around the trouble. Jesus limits the amount of trouble in direct relationship to the grace that he provides. And what he's saying is, is if you try and deal with tomorrow's troubles, 
You're actually entering into a zone where, friend, you don't have any grace to deal with those troubles because they're tomorrow's troubles. He provides, he provides daily grace, like daily manna. Grace ready for whatever you face. Grace ready for whatever your difficulty is. And so one of the strategies for dealing with worry and fear is limiting the scope of what you're thinking about to 24-hour increments by faith, saying, I don't know what tomorrow is gonna bring, but here's what I know. God's gonna help me, he's helped me today, and tomorrow there'll be grace for whatever I face. And if you've lived long enough, you can look back on your life and you've seen that over and over and over. Some of you have walked through immense trials with all kinds of difficulties, incredible fears, and you look back and you know, unbelievable how God helped me. Couldn't have predicted it, wouldn't have been able to see it in the future, but he showed up day after day after day, and the diagnostic question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Am I trying to live in tomorrow's troubles when I don't have grace for tomorrow's troubles? So let me be blunt. Brother, sister, if you want to try and live in tomorrow's troubles without grace, good luck. You're going to go there on your own, with your own strength, with your own power. You don't want to live in a place where you don't have God's grace helping you. And so one of the faith commitments, one of the belief steps is to say, I'm not gonna spend energy on tomorrow's troubles because I've got grace for today. So nine diagnostic questions. Fear isn't tame, friends. It's not as simple as me saying to you, just believe, just believe. It's, it's not that simple. But at the same time, there are belief issues underneath our fears that we have to think about. And one strategy for dealing with our fears and anxiety is asking myself, you ask yourself the same question, what do I need to believe right now? So here's what I want you to do. Here's your assignment. I want you to think about the thing right now that's got you the most worried. You got it? What's the thing that you spend a lot of time right now you're really fearful about? And then I want you to ask yourself this question. What is God calling me to believe in light of these questions and in light of this worry. And why not just take a minute and talk to God about what you need to believe and ask him to help you. Listen, it's not gonna solve all the problems. It's not gonna fix everything. But here's what I know. It's a really good place to start. Because while fear isn't tame, God is good, and his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, help us. So many battles at so many layers with so many fears that we need you, Jesus, to remind us over and over and over of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. So, Lord, whatever we fear, help us by your spirit to be able to diagnose what's going on so grant us grace, we pray in Jesus' name.